why trees? Trees, uh, there always have to be two things that come together. Uh, the one is something outside of the studio and something inside the studio. So the thing outside are trees and their associations. From the tree of knowledge and our early sense of the danger of trees, to ideas of trees as kind of portraits. So one could also think of these trees as a kind of extended self-portrait. And there's so many associations, trees and their mortality and our mortality, which we can maybe talk about later. That's outside the studio. Inside the studio, these all have to do with uh, a good brush becoming a bad brush. If you paint with Chinese ink or Indian ink, and you work with a brush that's either a Japanese or a Chinese brush, it's a long, soft brush that, if it's well kept, keeps a very sharp point. So you can both make a very broad stroke, but you can also find a very fine line. But somehow, I don't know how to look after these brushes. And after a short while, instead of keeping a very neat point, they all just become a series of spikes. However many times you straighten them, they just go out. And in desperation, I thought, what can I do with, this, with these bottles and bottles of bad brushes? And then found that there's a kind of random mark making that comes from these different spikes of the brush. That was something akin to the random but shaped form of leaves in a tree. So the bad brush became the origin of all the paintings of, of trees, of accumulating the foliage on the different so some sections of the paintings are done with good brushes, but most, most are done with a range of different, and I have different bad brushes, which I know will do different things with the ink. I have to challenge you on this, William. You've said almost everything except that a tree is a tree. Now, before I, before I want you to answer, I want you to read something. I want to read something to you. This is from Conversation 3 on the 14th of December 2011 in this gallery, you say, there is a sense in which temperamentally in going for a walk in the felt, I always feel I'm walking over the felt rather than in the felt. It does feel distanced and other. It's not like swimming in a swimming pool where you feel you're in the water, which is a very comfortable element to be in. A hike over the South African landscape feels like an unnatural activity to me. If I have an hour to walk, I realize I will be much happier walking in my studio, stalking the studio, than saying, I've got an hour, I'm going for a walk in these woods, or I'm going to walk through this park, or I'm going to walk through this piece of felt. It's a bit like riding a horse. When I'm on the horse, I know I should not be there. The horse knows it, I know it, and we have a pact to say, all right, let's just get this over with quickly. I feel the same in the felt. I should not be there, but we'll both manage till the end of the walk. As opposed to some people who relax as they start walking in the landscape, they are who they are. There's a difference between the tree one wishes for and the trees you're presented with. So in all my childhood and still, there's a kind of a wish for the dappled light of a deciduous tree, of sunlight coming through leaves and making a partial shade on the ground. The trees around Johannesburg, the indigenous trees in that part, are very spiky and thorny and generally are very bad at giving you a soft, dappled shade. So there's that kind of strange relationship to 
to the trees, and these are all trees from, from around the high felt and the bush felt north of Johannesburg. So I wouldn't say they're trying to take revenge against the trees. There's an intrigue. I'm intrigued by the different shapes and forms and the way the branches make uh, their way out from a central point to different parts of the world. But I'm, I'm not a tree hugger. I don't feel like I need to embrace, embrace the, the sense of the, of the tree. I'm intrigued in, the, in their growth and in the mortality embedded in a tree. Yes. I should just add for the audience, I don't know whether you're aware, but Johannesburg, there are more trees in Johannesburg than in many other cities in the world. I add that in brackets. But William, you're not a tree hugger, yet in the beautiful litho yes. that there is across the road in the Goodman Gallery bookshop, uh, you say in French, en regardant un arbre, je deviens un arbre. Looking at a tree, I become a tree. You also say, un doute, l'ombre d'un doute, in the same litho, a doubt, a shadow of a doubt, and at the bottom, tout ce qui respire, everything that, that breathes. breathes. Is this it an is, evolution? A, it is an evolution. It is an evolution because the trees also have a... It's, but it's not... Yeah, I mean, I do write, in looking at a tree, one becomes a tree. Um, in painting a tree, the tree becomes who you are, or you become a different tree. There's an amalgamation of the tree also as a kind of self-portrait. There's a, I mean, there, there, there's a different sense of also the interest in, in trees. We, we had a tree in our garden which was planted when I was nine years old. And after about 55 years of the tree's age, uh, life, it got struck by lightning and it died. And it was chopped down in this huge area which had been shady, dappled area in a tended garden became this empty space. And there was something shocking, not, there was sh something shocking about the death of a tree because one assumes that a tree is going to live much longer than a human being. A tree should live two, three hundred years. And if the tree could only manage 55 years, where did that leave me or everyone else? So there's a sense of, there was a shock in the finiteness of a, of a tree's life. I mean, in Johannesburg at the moment, we have a huge plague of borer beetle, which is burrowing into many of the trees on the side of the road. And many, many hundreds of thousands of trees are going to die in the next couple of years in Johannesburg. It's like a separate pandemic for trees in many parts of the world. Um, but that sense of the mortality of a tree, and there's another, there's another description that was made of a tree which was to say that, obviously, as we're born, we know that, we, we know that from the moment we are born, at some point, we are destined also to not be there, to die. And one can think of all the years that you are living, you are also busy growing inside you a kind of tree of your own death. That as you get older, so it gets older. As you get taller, so it gets taller and fills all of you. And at a certain point, you're going to die and what will be left will be this image of the tree. And so if you die young or if there's a premature death, the shock is also that this, this death which should be growing to a fullness has been cut short and the tree is now a, step, a sapling or, or truncated. So there is also a sense of a tree growing inside you 
and the breathing of a tree almost like the breathing of our lungs. Um, I wouldn't push it further than that, but That's it's definitely there. pushing it pretty far. It is. <laughs> further than one needs. Um, just before we go on, just in brackets, what did it feel like having a litho of yours with the French language printed on it? it I, I liked it because it marks it of where it comes from, that it was made here in Paris last week at the uh, Idem studio in Rue Montparnasse, relocated here. Um, so it, I like it as a marker, particularly when it's outside of Paris, it will be interesting as a marker of having been here in, in France. There is also something about the idea of paper pulp, of making an image of a tree on something that was once a tree. In fact, the paper we use is probably not so much a tree, but other forms of plant which have been turned into paper which now hold the tree again. Behind us, we have two trees. And on this side, there's a tree with quotes, some of which you say, I'm quoting you, you've scavenged from various political sources. And on this side, we have a tree which is more personal. And it's quite rare in your work to find the use of the word I and such a personal reference. Can you tell us how you shifted from the one to the other? Well, the texts. I mean, as you know, a lot of the texts that appear in the work are not my writing. They are phrases scavenged from different poets, usually not English poets, usually poetry in translation. And they're different lines, and sometimes they get uh, transformed slightly, a phrase gets changed, different things. And they're written down in a kind of a commonplace book. And then when a project happens, in this case, working on the libretto for the chamber opera waiting for the Sibyl, which is shown in the projection downstairs. Sometimes I'll go through these pages and start pulling them out, writing them again, and then not taking them at random. It's not about randomly taking them, but about seeing on the table in front of me the physical activity of moving them around to find the order, the logic, the connections that happen. So in this case, if there are some which have an I in them, it comes from that. Yes. But it's also the sense that when you've found the text this way, it's, you, I can't uh, um, remove myself from, from responsibility because it still has to be text that feel right. And if there is an I, it is also an I that feels appropriate um, in the text. But is there something special for you about having produced a tree with a more personal linguistic aspect to it? I mean, what happened in this case was that there were two trees, and I had a big gathering, and I thought, oh, in fact, some of these feel much the ones that particularly the lines from Mayakovsky feel much more about the state of the world, and these ones feel much more about the state of the inner being and inner self. So they got sifted out quite simply on those categories. Um, but no, I'm not frightened of the eye coming in, because the eye, when it comes into the picture, is always uh, je être. It was all, you know, it's I in the third person. Even though it's the word I, it's still used as a self-portrait in the third person rather than directly. Okay. Which means it's him calling himself I. The person making it, making, standing there, sticking that down, who feels sometimes very removed from the person sitting here. No, no longer that person. Well, one's never that person. The person, the shift between making the drawing, being the person making the drawing, 
uh, dissolves the instant you take one step away from it and look at the drawing the same way when you're writing, as you reread it for the first time, it's a different person who reads it. And usually you think, you know, who was the idiot that wrote that? Or I didn't do that drawing. I would have done a much better drawing if I'd been asked to do it. But each time you return to it, you disappear, and that fool is there again making the drawing and making the same, the same mistakes. So there's a, there is a distance of who was, one is in the studio. And he got to exhibit it, not you. He got to exhibit it and to stay in the studio, and I have to sit here and, and try, to, try to desperately imagine what he was thinking of and speak on his behalf and try to find a logic like that's not there about what he thought about using the word I. I wasn't there. He was the one who did it. Uh, William, can you say a few words about the blank spaces in the more personal uh, drawing? This isn't the first time you've had blank spaces. I was remembering the uh, space you had in the Tiber project when you, one of your wonderful frescoes or st uh, stencils along the wall is marked Kelo Kenon Ricordo. What you, what, that which one does not remember. Is, does that relate to it this does at all? Relate, it does relate to it, it's two things. It's, on the one hand, it's simply a formal question when looking at it. I had a whole pocket full of phrases, and I was pinning them to the... So the tree was sort of first drawn with the gaps, and then I thought I'll be able... Then I'll paint very carefully the text in those gaps. But after doing one or two, I knew that most I would leave blank. Not to say you shouldn't fool them. So it's not quite an advent calendar. You're waiting to open each one and discover what the text is behind. But it's got some sense of them. What is the memory behind each of those that's, that's gone? So the text of that tree, which is finally memory yields, could be also finally memory yields. It unlocks itself and allows new thoughts, old memories to come to the surface that you thought you had forgotten. Well, let's take it from there. Is that the full meaning of the title of this exhibition? We'd have to ask him who wrote it. Um, no, I think it's, I was intrigued by the phrase finally memory yields because it has a double sense. Um, memory yielding can be like your memory giving up. You know, and you get old and your memory fails. You know, even now, I can't remember someone's name, you can't remember a face, you know the, the word, the, the, the French playwright, the French playwright, not Achto, the other one, the names of the two of my tongue, I can't. And then an hour later, Genet, the name Genet walks into your head. So you know it, but you've forgotten it. So memory can yield in that sense of those numbers and those names have disappeared. But it can also be memory which has locked itself, yields, and allows itself to be present again. Don't you prefer the second? Yes, or, definitely. You, you're not really saying, finally, we reach oblivion or something no, like that. No, 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 no. I'm saying that the things which memory has chosen not to let us bring to the surface can be unlocked and they come. You know, so you can have your, if you want to put it back into the tree metaphor, the tree that is locked there all winter and then at a certain point it yields and allows all those leaves that have been waiting inside it to come out in those two weeks of spring. I must admit I'm intrigued by the word finally because this is not, after all, the first time that you've let memory into your work. You've made other faces and timetables, yeah. those wonderful films. Your memory has poked its face up in many places. So where does the finally come from? Hmm. 
I mean, the truth is it came from my notebook of commonplace words. And so, but it felt right. It did come from there, but it's, so it's not good enough to say it just comes from there. But I didn't say memory yields, no, cross that out. One day memory will yield, no, cross that out. Finally memory yields, yes. Um, the skill was in the poet who wrote it in Finnish, and then the translator who translated into English, and then me latching onto that phrase when I read that poem. Not knowing what it would be used for, but knowing it should sit in one's pocket somewhere. It also seems to me that in this exhibition there is a new kind of manifestation of memory in those uh, li drawings, lithos, that you've done that are in the, in the bookshop, which are almost like after images or dream remembrances of the processions you've done. Do you see it like that? I do. I mean, there are. There's four that make, that make one procession. Um, the four that make a procession are interesting also, just in terms of where do images come from? How do they work? Um, one of the consequences of the pandemic all over the world, but in South Africa as an example, was the desperate circumstances both of individual artists but of many arts organizations. And so, as with all artists around the world, there are a huge number of requests for aid in the form of doing benefit additions that could be sold to aid arts organizations. And in a certain week, I think four different requests came to the studio. So I decided, right, let's do all four as both also as a single work and as four different things. And so each of those four images was done largely, the bulk of the addition uh, went to a different organization, a dance organization, an artist support scholarship organization, different places like that. But they also then started, well, they'd have a coherence, and the coherence is that together they form a kind of procession. And the images in the procession, you're quite right, are after images of, there are figures that have appeared in other works. Some are sculpture, some are shadow figures, some from a tapestry that are re-brought into the form of a coffee lift etching. They're etchings, not lithographs. Before you come to the coffee, so there are, in a way, memories of your own work. Yeah. Yeah. But they're, I mean, there are always, I keep on thinking I'm gonna make a new image and I make the image and discover, damn, I made that four years ago, two years ago, three weeks ago. Unless it was the other guy, right? Unless it was the other guy. Yes, yes. But um, it feels a bit like kind of Commedia dell'arte characters that are pressed into different servers to perform different uh, plays, but doing their same kind of stock roles. So the rhinoceros would be one figure that often has to appear. A megaphone comes. The telephone gets taken out of the cupboard and put into another, into another image. And I made a list once of everything I've drawn, a list of everything I could ever remember drawing, and then a list of things which I knew I had never drawn. And then I said, all right, for a year, I will only draw things on the list of things that I have never drawn. But after like an hour, I realized I was stuck and was never going to draw the things in the list, or not out of just that need, but was very happy to draw. So I was happy to draw the 4,000th rhinoceros, but not the first hippopotamus. Um, yeah. Can you say something about the coffee? About the coffee list? The coffee you were using to okay. make the images. Okay, so the, when I started making etchings, 
this has been the 1970s, there was no real sense of toxic chemicals, or if there were toxic chemicals, that's just what you worked with. So we used to wash our plates in pure benzene, um, which presumably tells me that I'm going heading towards bladder cancer as the way out, because that's what all this benzene should do after all this. And lackethin, as Anne and I would go to sleep with silk screen prints drying on clotheslines above the bed, just breathing in pure lackethin of fumes. Um, but in the last years, it's become very, uh, people are much more aware of the toxic nature of a lot of art making materials. And so people have done uh, research and found ways of doing it. So they've discovered that instead of having to use benzene, you can clean an etching plate perfectly well using sunflower cooking oil. And instead of having to use a lacquer-based shellac to put a ground on, you can do it with some mixture of soy sauce. And instead of the sugar lift, which used to be done with condensed milk and Indian ink, now you can do very well just using instant coffee. It has to be bad quality instant coffee because of all the extra solubility that needs to be in it to lift <laughs> through. So there's a kind of cooking of etching now. Um, which has been introduced into the studio. And there's a different kind of mark that the coffee gives you than the sugar gives you from the condensed milk. Okay, I want to shift this conversation now to the, to the film downstairs, waiting for the Sybil. So the, in 1968, um, the Rome Opera premiered a piece, or showed a piece that was only showing, made by the American artist Alexander Calder, Calder, as he's known here in France, um, which was a 19-minute piece made for Rome opera by, by Calder. Uh, and it consists of huge mobiles on the stage turning and people on bicycles riding around. A very late 1960s um, piece with recorded pieces of music by Italian contemporary composers. And the Rome Opera wanted to revive this and asked me to do a second part of the evening. So they would show the Calder first and then a new piece. Um, and the new piece became a chamber opera called Waiting for the Sybil, which also had to do with things that turn, like the Calder, but the things that turn were the pages and the leaves of the, of the Cumaean Sybil. And it's a chamber opera of which has uh, music written by Nsansa Mashlango, a South African singer and uh, choral composer, and Kyle Shepard, a fantastic jazz pianist from Cape Town. And I think there are two dancers and seven singers, six singers. Um, and that, that we performed in Rome, and we performed it in a few other cities, and we do it in Stockholm in a week. Um, and out of that comes this particular section. So what you see downstairs is nine minutes of the 45-minute opera. And what is seen downstairs is projected on a screen on the stage. And where you see downstairs the images of a woman dancing and turning, by and large, those, are, those images are made by the dancer and her shadow on the pages of the projections of the book. And there are many other scenes that happen throughout that, that mimic the structure of the Calder. Of course, like uh, Cockney rhyming slang, where at a certain point you dispense with the rhyme, which gives you the logic of the piece, the Calder is no longer performed. It has to do with the anomalies between the Calder being a piece of stage equipment, which it is for Rome opera, but for the Belle Arte in Italy, it being an expensive piece of artwork valued at 
$18 million that has to be handled with white gloves and air-conditioned crates and makes it impossible to travel with it. So the Calder, in fact, has disappeared and we left just with the Sybil. Then there is a first part to waiting for the Sybil. Did you add that in afterwards? That we added in, the, the first part was added in, we had to do a first half thing, we couldn't do the Calder anymore. Uh, so we made a new 20 minute piece, which really comes out of a film I'd already made, which got expanded and we did live music with it with the same singers. But it's an interesting thing because it has to do with processes that start in kind of, I wouldn't say in bad faith, but don't start from a particular burning need to say this is the story we need to tell. The starting point was we need to find something for 20 minutes to put in the first part where the call is that we couldn't do. And we said, well, we'll do this piece of the live singing and this animated film and hope that it's sort of okay. But in the end, it became very, very beautiful. The singing was fantastic and it worked very well with it and became a very strong piece in, its, in itself. So I'm always interested in that, in a way, you the kind of the inauthentic or the impure origins which can nonetheless lead to something that is coherent or stronger. But that's not, that's not represented in this exhibition sure. so much. And then you were telling the Marion Goodman team as we went around the other day that, in fact, the music to the piece downstairs was taken from rehearsal, not from the recording studio. Can you say something about that? Yes, the way the, the music is composed by Antranta Mashlango, but with the particular singers that, are in the, that perform it in the film downstairs that were... Part of the workshops, the, the pieces are always made in the studio as a kind of series of improvisations, almost like the leaves swirling, but which then solidify into a final text, final piece of music, final set of movements. And at some point along, we did a recording of, with the singers in my studio, in the drawing studio, um, of the music which is in the film down below. And later on, we thought, okay, if this is going to sustain itself as a film by itself, we'd better do a proper quality recording. So we hired a very good studio, and everybody went, and we rehearsed, and mic'd everybody up separately so we could catch all the different channels and get the balance exactly right. And spent a long time doing it, and it sounded great, and we could make this person louder, that person softer at this moment, as opposed to the recording where it's kind of one... There was a few mics, but it's one mix. There's no point, no possibility of changing. But when we came to do the editing, we suddenly discovered that, yes, the great quality recording, technical recording, was not nearly as, as strong, as interesting as, as the first rougher recording we had. So it's the rougher recording that is down here. And it's to the, to the credit of the gallery and the installers and the staff that it sounds so, sounds so much better here than I've ever heard it sound anywhere else. Yeah. It's acoustically a bit like the equivalent, the acoustic equivalent of the bad brush. It is, although this is still a very good brush in terms of even that rough recording was well, was well done. No, the, the real bad brush recordings somehow don't okay. quite make it. What you didn't say when I asked you earlier about having a litho with French written yeah. on it is how special to you the French language and France are? Yes, yes. okay. So, 
Anne and I spent a, 10 months in France in 1940 years ago. Um, I was studying theater, but I was studying mime, so it didn't matter that I couldn't speak French. Um, but I picked up, you know, a, a French to survive with there, which has been the French I have. And because I was happy to speak it fast but badly, I mistakenly assumed that I could speak it. And it took, it took all my French-speaking friends to say to me, it's fine, really speak in English. We understand you better to not, to not parade it in public. But I do love it, and it does feel of, the, of all the millions of other languages which I don't have a clue, it's one that is least far away after English. So I'm changing the subject slightly, but not altogether. We were talking the other day, and you showed me a quote by your mother. Just before I read it, could you tell us around about which date that was? So my mother was a lawyer, an advocate in South Africa, and she had a private practice as an advocate for many, all the years of my childhood. But in my adolescence and early adulthood, she stopped that practice and focused all her attention on founding an organization that was going to give not just legal aid to individual cases, but would fight legal cases that needed to be fought in the last years of the apartheid era. And it's still a very important organization, but in the 19, late 70s and through the 1980s, it was of fundamental importance in South Africa. And then she left South Africa with my father. But those years of um, founding the Legal Resources Center and its battles were like her prime. That was when she was at her most alive, the most charged by what she was doing every day. Uh, and the organization still continues, continues today in South Africa. And the quote, that, that her name then, Felicia, Felicia. Kentridge, yeah. uh, and the quote I'm about to read, do you have any yeah. idea what date that might be? It would have been from, I think she was given an honorary degree in America, and it was probably from a speech she gave there, which would have been in the mid-1990s, I think. Okay. Early, 90, early 1990s. Early 1990s. But which I came across... I came across, which pointed out to me a few weeks ago, um, this, this quote from my mother in the 19, early 1990s, in a cooking book, a book of recipes, a book of recipes that was published this year or last year by a series of community organizations in Cape Town that was a mixture of descriptions of these activist organizations and their recipes, how to make a pot of fur for 300 people, those kinds of community cooking recipes, activist recipes. And in it, just on one of the pages, they had some different quotes by different political figures on it, and this was one of the pages. So here's the quote. There is an adrenaline in being South African that is highly volatile. It pulses with outrage and incredulity as yet another incident of cruelty, bigotry, and stupidity unfolds. It is miraculous to have this erratic energy, these sparks in the abyss of rage, harnessed into practical action. And this has been my good fortune. Wow. Your mother gets two rounds of applause, William. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so pleased for that. I'm yes, so, yes. She was so, 
under-recognized during her lifetime, and in the years since she's died, she gets more and more recognition for what she did. So it's very moving for me to have you read that. Huh. And do you think we could still apply it now to South Africa? We could, but it's more difficult. I mean, in the sense that the, the bigotry, cruelty, and stupidity is still there, that we, that we know is the world we're still living in. Um, it gets harder to, you know, it was clearer how to harness it during the apartheid era, to know what the clear battles were. Now the battles are less, they're still there, but they're less clearly defined. You know, is it, is it simply this part of the bureaucracy that is corrupt? Is it, is, is, does it go further than that, where actions are being stopped? Are there still people who you can find as your allies in this corner of the world? It's a much more complex, um, it's much more intermingled. The, the venality and good, and good effort are much closer connected now. So within an organization, you have some people who are in it for the privileges that come with it, and some people are in it still desperately trying to transform that corner of the world. I feel like asking a sort of cliched question like, are the changes coming into the studio to affect you in any way that you can palpably put your finger on? No, no, explain that more. Or which changes? The changes in the country. In the country. Do they come into this? They certainly come in as part of the atmosphere of what it is to be in the country. So there's a collapse of a lot of public institutions. So the Johannesburg Art Gallery, the art gallery of my childhood, is in a state of collapse, you know, multiplied now because of having to close for the pandemic. But even before that, it was in a state of kind of terminal collapse. So that is. That is one of the reasons why we started the Center for the Less Good Idea, a small art center we have in Johannesburg, some ways to do the work that public institutions ought to be doing but aren't, certainly in the city of Johannesburg. So it does, it does definitely does come in in that, in that way. But I think in many places around the world, public initiatives have collapsed and different private ones have tried to fill the gap, sometimes successfully, sometimes less successfully, but it's not an ideal situation that you know, things that should be there as a public good get fewer and fewer. But whatever the case, you persist in living in Johannesburg in the same house where you once grew up. Yeah. Um, there's an energy, to quote my mother, there's an energy that comes from living in there and the, both from the distress and the encouragement and the energy of the people working with. I mean, there are a lot of, in the studio, there are many, many collaborators. Um, not so much on this floor, which is just essentially me and a pot of ink, but downstairs, certainly the singers, the composer, the editors, the people involved with the film. In the other room, the different print studios that I work with, the tapestry weavers, the sculpture foundry. There's a whole village of people around Johannesburg that are, are essential for me in the studio. That was my 13th question. Yeah. Uh, you've been given seat number 13 in the Académie des Beaux-Arts. Uh, that's what's been allocated to you, told us last night. Are you in any way superstitious? About fauteuil treize, no. I was more, suspicious, I was more superstitious. Um, there's an award I got in Japan, and it's usually given to people, let me say, a lot older than myself 
but there there's something like a 70% mortality of people dying within two years of getting the award. Um, and in some cases, like two weeks before they get it. So, but I've outlived that. I'm past that. I'm in safe terrain ah. since then. But glad to hear yeah. it. <laughs> 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 mm.